Well, I'll tell you what, if you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, good to be here with you guys. You'll see I brought my family in the back right over there. Rebecca is there with our two children. Uh, Apollos is in the front, and he, he told me he wants to be a preacher like Daddy. He, and so at the dinner table, he was, I don't know where he learned this from, but he was pounding the dinner table, and he was saying, repent, believe. So I don't think I preach like that. I, you know, I think I'm, I'm much more calm, I, I feel like. But anyway, so he's training to be a preacher. Hopefully he'll become a Christian first and a preacher. Uh, and then our daughter in the back as well, her name is Gracie, and she is three weeks old in two days. So she's over there as well. Okay, we'll tell you what, let's go ahead and get to the text, shall we? We're going to finish Philippians chapter 4, or the whole book of Philippians, really, uh, chapter 4. I hope you've seen how Paul wants you to live a gospel-centered life. So throughout the entire book, from chapter 1 through chapter 4, he has been on a mission to help you and I live a gospel-centered life. Of course, a few weeks ago I said that the main idea, I think, of the book is Philippians 1, verse 27. I think that might be the main idea, the main theme, the thesis statement of the book. It says this, Philippians 1, 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you all that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, driving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, Paul's goal in Philippians is for you and I and this church to live a gospel-worthy life. And so in chapter 1, he says the gospel ought to affect the way you view your circumstances. So Paul is in jail, but he's not, not complaining about it. No, he says, look, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain, no matter where I am. I'm going to, going to worship and live for Jesus. Then in chapter 2, he gets a little more specific. He talks about how if we really believe this gospel, we'll be humble. We'll pursue unity. We will count other people more significant than ourselves. Why? Because literally that's what Jesus did. It says in verse uh, 5 or 6, it says, look, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Jesus. He, in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he counted other people more significant than himself. Therefore, so should you. That's chapter 2. Then chapter 3, what he's going to say is, the gospel allows me to count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. I'm going to, I'm going to completely abandon, I'm going to, to forget what lies behind and strain forward what lies ahead. I'm going to press on toward the goal for the prize. The gospel allows me to do that. I'll live a gospel-worthy life. And so now we have chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we're met with a pressing issue. There's a problem in the church. You see it in verse 2. It says, look, I, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Suntiki to agree in the Lord. In other words, you have two women who are fighting in the church. Iodia, and the Greek word is pronounced Suntuke. It, it looks it's strange. I've always pronounced it wrong my whole life. I think, I think it's Suntuke. And I think what Paul is doing, he's giving us the first of three tests. Three tests. The first test is this, the test of obedience. The test of obedience. Let me see what I mean. It's at this point in the letter that Paul intends everything he said thus far to come to bear. He, he expects 
the Philippian church, and particularly these two women, to put into practice everything he's been talking about. So chapter 1, even when circumstances are unfavorable, can you still say for me to live as Christ and die as gain? Chapter 2, will you two women, in humility, count each other more significant than yourselves? Chapter 3, will you two forget what lies behind and press forward what lies ahead? In other words, will you obey the book? Let me say this. God is not simply interested in you knowing the right answers. He wants you to be able to pass the test. And the test is not merely about theological regurgitation, right? I heard this Sunday school, and here I am just saying it again. He is not interested in theological regurgitation. No, he is interested in biblical application. And so the question he's going to ask this Philippian church is this, will you obey the book? Did you know, after every sermon you've ever heard, that's been the question God has asked you. Will you obey the book? What does Hebrews 4 say? Hebrews 4, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I've been working with my son on quick obedience. Quick obedience. He's two and a half, and he likes to hang out somewhere on the spectrum between delayed obedience and flat-out disobedience. He's somewhere on that spectrum. And so my wife and I have been giving him what we call reminders. Okay, so we call them reminders. Now, these reminders, they're not bad. Some of you, you know, there are generational differences in how people discipline their kids. Like, some of you got beat with belts and sticks and stuff. That sounds traumatizing. My generation got spankings. Okay? Some kids now, they're getting off easy with time out. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> My mom, last week, so she's from Jamaica, <clears throat> told me last week, she said, Brian, when me was a girl, we had the pepper touch. I said, the what? She said, the, the pepper touch. I said, why is it called the pepper touch? She goes, because, my son, when it touch you, it's spicy like pepper. So I'm not sure what that is. That's not what I'm talking about when I say reminders, okay? We, we give him reminders. Why? Because sometimes we need to remind him who's in charge. We need to remind him that we expect complete and immediate obedience every single time. And that delayed obedience is really a form of disobedience. God expects obedience. Will these two women obey the call to be unified in Jesus. It's that simple. You've heard the book, he says. Now I entreat you two women to work it out. Agree in the Lord. Pursue the unity. Pursue the humility. Pursue the the Christ-centeredness. I've been talking about the entire book. Pursue unity. So let me give you an application. Um, Maybe you have an issue with somebody in the church. Let me say this, if you, if you persist in bitterness, you are betraying the heart of the doctrine of adoption. Think about it. When you got saved, 
you also got adopted, meaning you got a new heavenly father. And so, when you get a new father, you also get new brothers and sisters. And if you refuse to get along with your brothers and sisters, you demonstrate that you don't esteem the adoption. Adoption doesn't just mean a new daddy. It means a new family. To persist in bitterness is to betray the doctrine of adoption. You have a new family. It's as if we're saying this. God, I'm glad you've chosen to be my father, but I can't stand that sinner over there. Well, guess what? That sinner is your brother. That sinner is a co-heir with Christ. That sinner is a brother for whom Christ died. Unity in the church is not an option. It's a mandate. It's not an option. And neither is joy. Neither is joy. Take a look at verse 4. So unity is commanded, but also see how joy is commanded. Verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let me pause. Does it not strike you that Jesus commands your joy? He commands you to be joy. He commands you to rejoice. So there's something to a call to worship, isn't there? When a worship leaders, they, they call us to worship, they are echoing God's heart in the scriptures, particularly Psalm chapter 100. Let me read it to you, verses 1 through 4. It says this, verse 1, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord, get this, with gladness. He doesn't just say serve the Lord begrudgingly. No, no, no. With gladness. God cares not just that you serve him, but he also cares how you serve him. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. God commands you to rejoice in him. Why? For the simple fact that he's worthy. His very nature demands honor and praise. Think about it. If massive angelic beings cover their eyes in humility and they say, holy, 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 how much more should we? If our God, like it says in Job, draw Leviathan out with a fish hook. Le Leviathan's a, a sea monster. It, I thought he was a mythical creature, right? It, he goes, no, 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 I go fishing, I catch sea monsters. If our God can draw out Leviathan with a fish hook, how much more should we respond to him with reverence and awe? Think about it. If a legion of demons beg to be sent into pigs so they can drown lest they face the wrath of our king. How much more should we praise him? Got one more. If he rebukes hurricanes and the wind and the sea obey him, how much more should we? His very nature, his very nature demands honor and praise. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Why always? Because our God is always 
reigning supreme on a throne. That's why. Rejoice in the Lord always. Therefore, if God is always reigning, always worthy to be rejoiced in, therefore, verse 6, do not be anxious. See how that works? If God is reigning supreme, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so, anxiety and joy, they're, they're set up to be antithetical. So they're set up to be opposites. They're opposed to each other. Anxiety comes when you forget that last phrase in verse 5. That last little phrase. Maybe you missed it. Verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Meaning, the Lord is here. The Lord is near. And if that's true, that should produce joy, verse 4. And it should also produce, produce verse 7, peace. Peace. If the Lord is at hand, and he's always reigning, that should produce joy, but also peace. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which, which surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense. The type of peace that Paul is talking about, the type of peace that makes you rejoice when you have, when you have prison guards chained to you, that kind of peace makes no sense. And Paul is saying the peace of God is, is that kind of peace, where external things might be going terribly, and yet here you are, living in verse 4, rejoicing in the Lord always. The peace of God will guard your heart, your emotions, and your mind, your thoughts, in Christ Jesus. But it begins with choosing to rejoice in the Lord who is always at hand. That's the obedience of joy. But there's one more thing he wants to obey. So we've seen the obedience of joy. We've seen the obedience of the book of unity. See the obedience of theology. Talk about theology here for a little bit. The obedience of theology. Look at me in verse 8. I want to press us on this. Verse, verse 8. Finally, brothers. You can tell Paul's a preacher. Always saying finally, not really getting to the end. Finally, brothers. I got a little bit more. Finally, brothers. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, get this. Think, theologize, think about these things. What you have learned, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Think about these things, practice these things. That's called theology. And the God of peace will be with you. Let me give you the definition of theology. Let me put it this way. Theology is bringing God's perspective to bear on anything. When you bring God's perspective to bear on any, pick a topic, in the Bible, out of the Bible, if you can bring God's perspective on anything, you're doing theology. Now notice this about theology. Theology is about thinking. It requires thinking. Verse 8. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Theology requires intense and intentional thinking. 
but it cannot stop there. If it, if it stops there, we're Pharisees, we're hypocrites. Theology also involves doing. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do them. That's what he says. Do it. Practice these things. Put it this way. To think but not practice is hypocrisy. To practice but not think is at best empty and at worst heresy. Theology requires thinking and doing. Let me give you, let me give you the promise of theology. If, if done properly, see, see what theology can, can give you. Look at me in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do these things, and here's the promise. Here's, here's the, the goal of theology, the promise of theology, and the God of peace will be with you. The promise of theology is that when you are thinking and applying God's perspective on the everyday stuff of life, God is with you. You see the play, play on, on words? Verse 7, the peace of God. Now in verse 9, the God of peace. Meaning, God is what he gives. He is peace, therefore he, he gives peace. That's a test of obedience. Will you pursue unity? Will you rejoice at all times? Will you search for and bring God's perspective to bear on the everyday stuff of life? It's the first test. But there is a second test. And let me give it to you this way. It's in verses 10 through 15. It's the test of contentment. The test of contentment. Look at me in verse 10. It's important to keep the context in our minds. Remember, Paul is in prison. And he's writing this in the jail cell. Maybe he's dictating to somebody. Maybe someone else is writing it. He's just sort of speaking. But either way, he is in adverse circumstances. Look at me in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Remember that piece, that surpassed understanding? There it is. Makes no sense. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So note what Paul has. Paul has a firm joy. A firm joy. He says, I, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Remember, I can't say it enough, Paul's in prison. His circumstances don't seem to affect his joy. What about you? Curious, do you have a firm joy? Or are you driven and tossed by the wind of pomp and circumstance? Let me put it this way. Our inability, our inability to find contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances. Nothing. It's not your home life. It's not your, your friend group or your, your family group. It's not your stage of life. It's you. Remember that verse in 1 John? Perfect love casts out fear. Notice what that verse doesn't say. It doesn't say perfect courage casts out fear. No, perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because the perfect love is from a perfect father. You overcome fear and anxiety not by changing your circumstances, by changing your mind. A firm joy stems from a perfect love. And it sounds like 
Paul has, has had his mind changed. I'll put it this way. When you get saved, two things happen. Your heart is replaced. Ezekiel 36, heart of stone, heart of flesh. Your heart is replaced, but also your mind is renewed. And when your mind is renewed, you learn a great secret. A great secret. See the great secret in verse 11. Verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, because I've learned in whatever situation that I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret, there it is, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret? Here it is. God is for you. God is for you. And listen, if, if you can somehow learn that secret, you'll be unshakable. What does Paul say? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great secret to know. The secret is not just about being brought low. Do you notice that? It's not just about being in need. The secret also applies when you're in plenty. Abundance and need. Plenty and hunger. Hear this. Adversity may be the test of a man's character, but prosperity is the test of a man's heart. Adversity, it may, it may be the test of a man's character, but it's prosperity that's the test of your heart. If you've learned this secret, you'll have contentment in any circumstance. I see people all the time, especially in college ministry, bouncing from one problem to the next. And their problem is not that they're terribly unlucky. It's that they're terribly discontent. And no matter what happens to you, if discontentment is your default, you're to land there. For Paul, that's not his default. He has a steady confidence. See the steady confidence in verse 13? One of the most famous verses in all of Scripture says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Hold up. Let me put some parameters on this. This verse has been ripped out of its context more times than we could count. I've seen seen on like helmets, (laughs) shoes, commercials, coffee. I've seen it everywhere. And usually, it's applied in some sort of self-centered, self-promoting sort of way. And when I taught theology at the Christian school, I had a chant we would do in class. Uh, it would it'd be, context determines meaning. Context determines, maybe we would chant, context determines meaning, meaning. The context of the passage determines the meaning of the passage. Well, here, I think that's applicable. I think the all things, I can do all things. I think the all things is governed by a particular context. Namely, Paul is saying he can suffer for the gospel and he can prosper for the gospel. Why? Because ultimately God is for him. I can do all things through Christ. And God is for him because ultimately, I want you to hear this point, ultimately God is for God. Yes, God is for him. Yes, God is for you, but but ultimately 
God is for God. I mean, have you not been struck by the overt God-centeredness of this book? Philippians 1, verse 6, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work will do what? He'll see it to completion. He's not a quitter. That's about God. That's about God finishing what he starts. He will bring it to completion. Chapter 2, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Philippians 4, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. God is for God, but God is also for Christians. God loves Christians. Let's do this. Let's see how Christian contentment leads straight to Christian kindness. So you've seen God in the text. Let's see how we ought to respond to God in the text. Third test, the test of kindness. The test of kindness. See Paul's predicament. He has a predicament in verse 14. It says this, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So remember, his predicament is that he's in prison. And notice how suffering doesn't make Paul selfish. You know, suffering can make you selfish. I've seen it all, all the time. Because it makes you think you have a license to only care about yourself. Here's Paul saying, it was really nice of you guys to care about me. He's able to think beyond himself. So Paul has a predicament. But notice his provision in verse 15. See his provision. Verse 15 through verse 18. You Philippians. First part is his his provision. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Paphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So, provision for Paul comes three ways. Well, two ways. The first way is this, through churches. Through churches. God provides through churches. The church supported Paul. It's the church that is the ultimate missions agency. The church is the ultimate funding agency. From the very beginning, churches fund missions. And Missions produce churches. Churches fund missions, and missions produce churches. God provide for Paul through churches. But also, he provided for Paul through Christians. Christians. Notice that guy Epaphroditus. You saw him in chapter 2. Let me, let me remind you of this guy. In um, Philippians 2, verse 30. It's a great summary of this man's life. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
That's the kind of guy I want to be like. Someone who lives their life risky for the gospel and saying, I, I see a brother who is on mission. I'm going to do whatever it takes to help and support him. And so what, what God did, it's the grace in Paul's life, what God did was he put people in his life who would help him, who would support him, who would encourage him. I love how he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Onesiphorus, he said, this guy, Onesiphorus, he, he often refreshed me. He refreshed me. The way God provides for missions, let me say it this way, the way God provides for missions, he also provides for you. Through churches, through Christians. So, are you committed to the church? God provides for your soul through the church, through the preaching of the Word of God, through opening up the Scriptures, through being in community, through Acts 2 kind of community. God provides for your soul through the local church. Are you committed to the local church? Paul loved the local church. Your letters to the church. Are you committed to the church? But also, he provides through Christians. Are you committed to other Christians? I love how Hebrews says, says, let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage each other. And all the more, you say, the day drawing near. Are you committed to other believers? Are you committed to the church? And are you committed to other believers? That's God's provision. But also, see the promise. There was a predicament. There was provision. Now there's a promise. I'm very Baptist, aren't I? Very, very Baptist. P all the way. I got one more P coming up later on. Paul's promise. See, see the promise. Verse, verse 19. Here's the promise. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the promise is that God will provide. Let me say a few things about God's provision. First thing is this. His provision covers everything. Covers everything. Every need of yours in Christ Jesus. His provision is expansive. Covers anything and everything. I like how Walter Hansen puts it. He says this. The gospel of Jesus does not promise the absence of suffering, but it does promise the presence of the God of peace in suffering. God supplies every need of ours because he is everything we need. Whatever problem you have, whatever difficulty you're facing, I promise you, God is the answer to whatever that is. His provision covers everything, but also his provision can't be depleted. It cannot be depleted. See the phrase? According to his what? His riches. His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is rich with glory. You, you never need to wonder if you're asking too much of God. I want to tell you a story about a rich king who wanted to do a good thing for his servant. So he said, look, servant, you're getting married, and I want to pay for the wedding. Which some of you all know, weddings are expensive. I was reminded of that when um, the doctor told us that I was having, we were having a girl. I said, i got to pay for a wedding. First thing I thought, myself. I Google searched, how much do weddings cost? I went, oh. <laughs> so anyway, so, so, right, so wedding, so I'm pay for the wedding. It's a very generous thing to pay for a wedding. Well, the servant, he didn't want to seem like he was asking too much. He didn't want to be offensive. 
So what he did was he said, I'm going to go on the cheap. I'm going to kind of get everything low budget, cheap sort of stuff. And so then he submits the bill, the, the request, to the king. The king looks at it, and he tears it up. And he says, I'm not paying for this wedding. And so then the servant says, well, why not? It's, it's very affordable. And then the king said, well, the bill is so low. Either you don't think I can afford a good wedding, or you think I'm too cheap to give you a good wedding. And he said, either way, I'm offended. You never need to wonder if you're exhausting the provision of God. Therefore, with confidence, let us draw near to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in our time of need. His provision cannot be depleted. Got one more. His provision creates worship. His provision, it ought to lead to worship. Notice Paul just kind of explodes in worship randomly. End of the passage. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is modeling how worship works. Worship is a response to who God is and what God has done. When God acts, we worship him for what he's done. That's why, again, it's a call to worship. We arrive on Sundays, we say, hey everybody, God reigns. And we worship. It's a call to worship. There's Paul's promise. But one more section. I tried to make this fit. And so I've chosen the phrase, this is Paul's peace out. It's his, 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 his farewell. He's ending, ending the passage this way. It's Paul's peace out. Take a look with me in verse 21. It says this, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Get this, especially those of Caesar's household. That's important. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Let me say two things. First one is that evangelism works. And second thing is that grace is amazing. Evangelism works. Notice who greets the Philippians. Those of Caesar's household. Where is Paul? He's in prison. Either a guard got saved or some prisoners got saved. Either way, Paul's making disciples in the prison. And Paul says, hey, look, the brothers greet you. Those in Caesar's household, they're, they're uh, greeting you. Evangelism works. Apparently, knees are already bowing. And tongues are already confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, even in, a, even in a prison cell. When you share, eventually, people come to know Jesus. The evangelism works. Whatever circumstance you've been placed in, prison for Paul, a job you don't like, a neighbor trying to get out of, God intends for you to use that to leverage your life stage for the good of the gospel evangelism works. The second thing is this. Grace is amazing. Look at me in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know, we often run through these endings. <clears throat> run through the beginnings and the endings. Did you notice that Paul bookends Philippians with grace? Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy 
servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you. And the very last verse, verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. First paragraph, grace to you. Last sentence, grace be with you. What's in the middle? God's word. That's in the middle. The word of God is grace in your life. And when you read it, study it, obey it, and give yourself to it, you will lead a life filled with the grace of God and motivated to embark on the mission of God, growing more and more like the Son of God. Grace be with you, or grace to you, and may grace be with you. The grace he's talking about is the Word of God. And so Philippians ends with three major tests. The test of obedience. Will you obey the book? The test of contentment. Will you find joy in all circumstances? And the test of kindness. Will you help a brother or a sister in need? And all of this is rooted in a gospel of grace. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we're grateful for this gospel. We're grateful that, <clears throat> that evangelism works, that grace is amazing. We're grateful that you have sent your Son to live a holy and sinless life and to die on the cross for our sins. We pray we might obey this book of Philippians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.